Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 193, Churchill and Chiang Kai-shek, FDR's Warriors. Last time, we saw that, with the passage of Lend-Lease, the great debate of the United States' future, in regards to the war, was mostly over. There would be holdouts, but the average American citizen succumbed to the idea that it was just a matter of time before American boys were fighting fascism. Yet, that wasn't good enough for President Roosevelt. He honestly believed that in order for the democracies to win, one, the U.S. had to take an active part, and two, as he was the only qualified one, given his eight years in the White House, he had to be the one to lead the country during the coming troubled time. As such, American naval vessels were patrolling further out than international law normally recognized. A draft had been instituted, U.S. military expenditure had risen sharply, and lastly, FDR would remain president for another four years. Deciding he needed to stretch his sea legs, the president headed out in late March of 1941 in the presidential yacht USS Potomac. However, the weather would not cooperate. Heading south, hoping for the best, yet the weather stayed nasty. Finally, the president and his party pulled into Port Everglades, Florida. But also in dock there was the German cargo ship Aranka. It had been chased into the port by a British cruiser just over a year ago, and there she had stayed. What had also stayed was the swastika flying over the vessel. But just before the president arrived, rumors had spread and been investigated by Army intelligence that 5th Column saboteurs were going to take already seized access ships being held throughout the Americas and sink them in front of bays or other waterways, including the Panama Canal, to block usage. It's unknowable if there's any validity to these rumors, but either way, FDR saw a way to kill several birds with one stone. On the last day of March, the President gave word, and all Axis vessels within U.S. waters were taken under direct American control. Roosevelt personally watched as Coast Guardsmen hauled down the swastika in the Floridian Harbor. South American countries followed suit, and all the vessels were given over to the British. Berlin screamed piracy, but no American could deny this was a bloodless victory the best kind. Though the Germans protested, they took no action, which did not give FDR anything to react to. His idea was to balance upsetting Nazi Germany to the point of overt action without exposing Americans to any real danger. 
but in late March of 1941, Berlin had not taken the bait, and at least half of the country did not want to go to war. This was reinforced by a joint resolution presented to Congress by a senator and representative that said American merchant vessels were prohibited from transporting cargo to belligerents, nor could any American warships escort them. The majority of Americans approved of this. In other words, America was not ready to go to war or to be led into the war. There were those in FDR's cabinet that blamed their leader for not steering the people in the right direction, that he had not motivated them enough to help the British. Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson privately admonished the president for not explaining to the American people the gravity of the situation. Yet, this podcaster believes that FDR knew exactly what he was doing and knew how far he could go and how far he could not. This was not a man who showed his cards, not even to those closest to him, and it seems that he cared little if it affected their opinion of him. Either way, the people weren't ready to die for Britain, and the president knew he couldn't push them to want to. It didn't help that the United States was far from being ready to fight an active war. In early 1940, 159 bombers of various types had left American assembly lines. Seven of these went to the Army. 52 of these went to the Navy. The rest went to war-weary Britain. When 248 fighters were made ready, eight went to the Army, the Navy got 25, and again Britain got the lion's share. After all, they were currently in a war, and it didn't seem that the United States would be joining them anytime soon. On top of this, only one keel for a new carrier had been laid in the last three years. As for any destroyers, no more would be ready until mid-May. Not exactly war production rates. War Secretary Stimson wanted the president to take from the Pacific Fleet to help boost the Atlantic. But FDR knew that as Japan had signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, Japan's target had to be the European colonies in Asia. The United States was on a warpath with Japan, or the other way around. But all that mattered was that the United States was not only not ready for war with Germany, but certainly couldn't take on Berlin and Tokyo at the same time. It seemed that it would be best, for now, if the president did not get his wish for Nazi Germany to act overtly against American shipping. Yet on May 21st, 1941, that's exactly what happened. A German sub stopped the freighter Robin Moore, flying an American flag, headed for South Africa. The Germans ordered the crew into lifeboats and then sunk the freighter. Now it was the president's turn to yell piracy. FDR followed this up with a special message to Congress to be read out. Yet few congressional members even bothered to listen, as the message contained no military response. The irony of this did not escape the president's attention. But again, America was not ready for war. Naval personnel joined Stimson in wanting Pacific ships sent to the Atlantic. 
Admiral Ernest J. King, commander of the Atlantic Fleet, made his feelings known to Stimson, who responded by asking General George Marshall, Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, to examine Hawaii's defenses with the view of giving up some of its vessels. Marshall came back and said that Hawaii's defenses were amply sufficient to keep the Japanese away. Secretary of the Navy Knox added his might to the findings, and they all went to the White House. Still, FDR demurred. He knew that the Japanese only respected strength, and enough naval power had to be kept in the Pacific. But eventually, FDR did cave to the pressure. He ordered a quarter of the Pacific fleet to be sent east. This included a carrier and three battleships. Secretary of State Cordell Hull and, of course, the Pacific Fleet commanders were against this. But the decision had been made. As it turns out, by the end of the year, 1941, all those on both sides of this decision would be grateful for the transfer. Now the cabinet believed they had a more pliable president. So they pressured him to add to an upcoming speech the idea that Congress must be asked to give the president the right to use force to dominate the sea lanes, that Lend-Lease supplies to Europe would be safeguarded by American ships. Stimson pressed the hardest by telling the president that it was time for him to lead, to get out ahead of the American people, to stop letting them determine the nation's policy. Days later, when FDR spoke, he told his countrymen that what started as a European war has developed, as the Nazis always intended it should develop, into a world war for world domination. That unless Hitlerism was stopped, it was just a matter of time before the Western Hemisphere would be within range of the Nazi weapons of destruction. Of course, the president, still walking a thin line, left out specifics. Yet he ended the speech by issuing a proclamation of unlimited national emergency. But again, Congress was disappointed. Yet perhaps that was the idea. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. The German propaganda machine 
led by Goebbels, was equally unimpressed and characterized FDR's speech as a typical product of Roosevelt Jewish prompters. But Mussolini demonstrated his loathing for the American president and possibly his fear of a strong American reaction by screaming, Never in the course of history has a nation been led by paralytic. There have been bald kings, fat kings, handsome, and even stupid kings, but never kings who, in order to go to the bathroom, had to be carried by other men. But it was the same Duce who later told Hitler that they should not respond to the president's speech, as it would only stir U.S. desire for payback. As if this shadowboxing between FDR, Hitler, and Mussolini wasn't enough, the president also had to find a way to help the Chinese against Japan without entangling the U.S. further in the area. First, massive loans were given to China to buy U.S. and Soviet weapons and other goods. Yet many working under FDR did not trust the Chinese nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek. But it must be remembered, though many in Washington confused this, Chiang was a brilliant political animal, not a natural military leader. Moreover, the nationalists and the Chinese communists were openly battling each other, enough so that the Japanese invaders went largely ignored. Despite all this, the president was desperate to keep Chiang, like Churchill, in the fight. Some potentially good news on the Asian front came when one of FDR's informal advisors met with Claire Chenault, a former U.S. Army Corps colonel. He had been advising Chiang since 1937, and his latest idea went right to the heart of what FDR wanted in informal American assistance to the Chinese nationalists. Chenault wanted to repeat in China what General Stonewall Jackson had done during the U.S. Civil War. The Confederate cavalry had made numerous and effective cavalry raids against Union positions and supplies. Why not do the same to the Japanese in China from the air? FDR's advisor didn't know whether the idea was genius or madness, but he was soon excited enough to give it a try. Chenault got permission to set up the AVG, American Volunteer Group, later to be called the Flying Tigers. A dummy corporation was set up by the Chinese, and this company, using American loans, bought 100 P-40 American fighters. Chenault simultaneously went around to the American air bases and sought pilots who were equal part adventurers and hired them on the spot. These men retired from the service and took on the job of instructors to teach combat flying to the Chinese. But really, they would be the ones flying, flying over Japanese forces and hopefully slowing down their offensives. The paperwork for this took a while, but by December 7, 1941, many of Chenault's pilots were aboard various vessels heading to Burma. Other American pilots found themselves heading to a different theater, yet they hadn't volunteered. Roosevelt, as we have seen, shot down Knox's request to have U.S. warships escort merchantmen heading for Britain, but he did approve of another request. 
to have American pilots sent over to the British Isles to fly PBY-5 Catalina aircraft, which were used as coastal convoy escort duty. These planes were being sent over via lend-lease, so why not send over some pilots to go with them? The pilots could gain experience and then teach other American pilots when the U.S. entered the war officially in Europe. As Admiral John Towers, Chief of Naval Aviation, told them, the pilots, it's not a question if we go to war, we just haven't selected the date yet. By the middle of 1941, a relatively small group of American pilots were scattered throughout Britain and Northern Ireland, learning from their British counterparts. When the President had given his unlimited national emergency speech that had disappointed so many in Washington because it called for no military action, what he left out of the speech would have put a smile on all of those glum faces. In May, the mightiest warship built to date, the Bismarck, left her moorings. Her job was to cut supplies to Britain. And as the Bismarck had eight 15-inch quick-firing forward turrets, which could shoot shells 35 miles, curved armor plating 14 inches thick, a top speed of over 30 knots, and 44 anti-aircraft guns, Grand Admiral Raider hoped to choke Britain to death before the United States entered the war. The Bismarck was heading for the North Atlantic. But before the Bismarck left port, Churchill had sent wave after wave of bombers who attempted to destroy the mighty German ship before she set out. They had all missed, so now it was up to the Royal Navy to sink this German castle of steel before she could interrupt vital supply shipments. On May 24th, the battleship Prince of Wales and the battle cruiser Hood one of the most advanced ships of the Royal Navy, engaged the Bismarck, along with her sister ship, Prince Eugene. The British vessels closed in. When the ships were about ten miles apart, the German ships began firing on the hood. Soon one shell hit the hood amidships and entered the powder magazine. Then came a massive explosion that threw parts of the doomed British vessel hundreds of yards into the air. Of Hood's crew of 95 officers and 1,324 men, only three total survived. The Prince of Wales, now severely outgunned, put out smoke and pulled away. The last the massive Bismarck was seen, she was heading south, fast. Word of this was sent to the president, and he wondered if Hitler was sending the ship to the American coast, to scare the Americans into remaining neutral. FDR knew that the newest ship they had in the Atlantic was 20 years old, and no match for the German vessel. He then wondered out loud if the Bismarck might be heading to the Caribbean, the damage and hysteria she could cause down there. FDR asked, suppose we order our subs down there to attack her and attempt to sink her. Do you think the people would demand to have me impeached? It was hard to know how serious the president was. But someone replied, keeping up stride for stride with the old man, only if the Navy misses. What Churchill nor the Americans knew was that 
Just before the hood was sunk, the Prince of Wales had landed two shells into the Bismarck, which was now leaking oil. As such, she was making for German-controlled France to effect repairs. When Churchill was told the German vessels had gotten away, he sent out a message that screamed, Sink the Bismarck. The Royal Navy responded by sending out six battleships and battlecruisers, two carriers, 13 cruisers, and 21 destroyers. Just days after his first convoy escort flight, the voluntold American pilot, Navy Lieutenant Leonard B. Tuck Smith, sent out over to learn from the British, was flying a Lend-Lease Catalina with a British co-pilot. The British had sent aloft almost every plane they had to search for the Bismarck. Smith and the Brit had lifted off at 3.30 a.m. on May 26th to start their search. It took them five hours to reach their search area, but just as they dropped down through the clouds to begin, both men spotted a gray spot on the water. There she is, they shouted together. But the battleship had also spotted them. Soon a A fire was floating up towards the plane. The pilots dropped their depth charges and rose as fast as they could. It was then that Smith noticed the beams of light coming into the plane, through bullet holes. Yet the fuel tank was undamaged. So the PBY-5 stayed with the Bismarck for another four hours, until relieved. That plane also had a British and American pilot. When Smith landed at Loch Ernie, a lake in Northern Ireland, he had been flying for 18 hours. Tuck Smith was the first American in uniform to participate in the combat of World War II. Of course, the president left that part out of a speech, but was aware and had Smith given the distinguished flying cross. Fifteen swordfish torpedo bombers lifted off from the carrier Ark Royal late on May 26th, now that the German vessel's location was known. Torpedo after torpedo was sent at the Bismarck, yet only two hit home. But one of these ruined the ship's rudder. This left the German vessel the only option of circling while she took on the various British ships and torpedo planes coming at her. By the early morning of May 27th, several of those British torpedo bombers had been taken out of the sky, but the British warships closed in, sending up and over some 2,800 shells, of which 400 landed true. Slowly, over time, the Bismarck began to list. The shelling continued. The Bismarck's armor was impressive, but the sustained damage slowly weakened the plating. Churchill and the rest of Parliament were meeting in a temporary quarters after the commons chamber had been damaged by German bombardment when a note was handed to the visibly shaken PM. But upon reading it, a smile overtook his face. The Bismarck is sunk, he read aloud. The room shook with the resulting cheers. As Operation Barbarossa was to be launched in less than a month after this, Hitler ordered his navy to pull back from harassing or engaging the American vessels. First, let the Russians be defeated. This would free up Japan 
to harass the Americans, which would leave Germany free to finish off the British, or force them to a settlement. Yes, Stalin's USSR would be smashed soon, and no, the American president would not be given the first shot by Germany he was looking for. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, many of you have responded to my plea for assistance, as I am seriously considering doing podcasting full-time. Thank you very much. I just need about 150 more members to launch this thing. But then I realized I didn't make one thing clear. If I can get this going, I will be doing three series concurrently. A European episode, a Pacific episode, and a biography or some other storyline. Now, I know you've noticed the increase in commercials, but they are making this a real possibility for me. So take them in stride. But what I didn't say was that all three of these will not have commercials in them. I truly believe I will be able to put the commercials on just one line of the episodes at any given time, which means two-thirds of my regular output will be commercial-free. Sounds pretty good, right? So again, I'm asking for your consideration in supporting this podcast so I can really get into it and give you all the World War II-related material you want. Again, for those of you who have stepped up, thank you. As for the rest of you, please consider membership or a donation. I need the numbers to take to the chairman. Basically, Mrs. World War II Podcast.